Well, hey, y'all can grab a seat, and good morning. My name is Jacob Smith, and I am the teaching pastor uh, over at Anderson College, and I want to welcome you to Grace. Uh, it's a rare, this is my first time to be with you Southern Woods folks uh, since your move to Consol, and so it's really fun to be here with you guys. I'm very appreciative. I, mean, I, I love the opportunity to, to come over here to switch places with Kevin this one week, and it's really weird because I graduated from Consol. I'm a townie, like, through and through, so... Um, walking these halls has brought back a lot of angst, uh, but <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we'll be able to press through and I won't, uh, you know, be anxious about who's going to ask me to Sadie. Um, this morning we are continuing in a series that we started way back at the beginning of the semester where we are walking through the book of Proverbs. And we're doing this uh, with the goal of essentially understanding how God has guided his people in living this life. Our Lord has given us uh, incredible instruction and, and his wisdom is, is coming into play all throughout scripture. But, but there's so much to be found in the book of Proverbs uh, that allow us to navigate kind of just the uncharted waters of this world. And it's a way, uh, it's a guide it's, it's a collection of principles that hopefully will help us live our lives in a way that, you know, where we make better decisions and we live with fewer regrets. Man, that's, that's what the Lord has given us in the book of Proverbs. And so we've looked at a lot of different aspects of that. We looked at um, the best, like, relationships that you have with friends or a man or the best woman or the best uh, leaders. Uh, we, this morning, are shifting in, out of the relational sphere, though, and we're looking at more of kind of what are the, the ways that we invest our time, the way we invest invest our resources? How does God guide uh, our investments? And so you guys will be, I don't remember what, did you, maybe you, I think you heard this last week. No, it was, I don't know, two weeks ago. You guys covered the best word. So how do we speak? Like how, how does our, our, how do our voices, how does our speech uh, help other people around us and bring glory to the Lord? Uh, this morning we're looking at the best wealth. How do we invest the financial resources that God has given us to make an eternal impact. And you've also looked at the best type of work. I mean, how does our vocation aid other people in seeing the glory of God? So if you have been around, if you've heard a lot of these messages, awesome. If you maybe heard a few of those topics and you're like, man, I, I missed that one. I would love to catch up. The good news is that you can find our podcast. We upload all of our messages every single week. And so if you go through iTunes or Overcast, whatever you use, you can find those messages on those topics that might be really helpful for you. You also have the opportunity to read along with us in Scripture. We have a reading plan that we've launched through the YouVersion Bible app. That essentially guides you through these passages and connected passages to help you spend more time immersing yourself in the Word of God, hearing Him speak on these different issues and all these, on these different difficult topics that we encounter in our life. But as I said, this morning we are looking specifically at our financial resource. We're looking at wealth. And what we're going to find is that wealth in and of itself is not evil, right? But wealth has incredible potential and it has potential to point us in two different directions in life. It can either lead us down a path of increased frustration and anxiety or it can lead us down a path of increased faith and trust in our God. It's something that I think we see play out really perfectly right here. Where the old woman, where the day 
brutal. We live in a fallen world, and that's, that's the reality of our existence. That there are going to be times in our lives where we can look at what we've been given. Maybe we have that one kernel of dog biscuit that we need to sustain us. And yet, there's always opportunity to look and see who has more. There's always the opportunity to compare ourselves against maybe other people's experiences or even just our own personal expectations. There's always the potential for our wealth to, in fact, bring fear, frustration, anxiety, and, and, and anger into our lives. But, but what we find in the book of Proverbs is that's not a must. That's not the only direction that our wealth can lead us. It's not the only production of that resource. So this morning, when we look through the book of Proverbs at different passages connected to finances, connected to wealth, we'll find three key perspectives laid out. Basically, three different ways to view wealth in this world. And the first is that wealth can become an idol. In other words, our view of it can be incredibly high. I would argue too high. In another way, we can look at it as insignificant. In other words, our perspective on it could be too low. We could view it as uh, lower than it really should be in our list of priorities and responsibilities. But ultimately, our, our goal is to see wealth as an investment. So continuing with the Goldilocks analogy, that would be just right, right? That's, that's what we see in the book of Proverbs. It's, it's not a view of wealth where we're holding it above God himself. It's not a view of wealth where we just feel like it's not, it's not even important. It's not worth our time and energy and thought. But instead, there's a healthy middle where we see it as a significant resource that God has given to us to, to, be, to steward that can be used for eternal impact. So we see this kind of high view of wealth, this making it an idol, played out in a number of different passages. One of them is Proverbs 12, 9, that tells us that better is a person of humble standing who works for himself than one who pretends to be somebody important yet has no food. It's this idea that wealth can lead us down this comparison trap. Same thing in Proverbs 13, that there's one who pretends to be rich and yet has nothing. And there's another who pretends to be poor yet possesses great wealth. There's a temptation in our lives to present an image because we think that's what we should be or that's what we think other people assume we should be. It's, it's one of those, you know, just bizarre pieces of our culture, especially here in America, where we feel the need to front and we feel the need to create this perception, this public perception of ourselves that's ultimately not true. It's my buddies that all live up in Dallas, they love talking about the $35,000 millionaires. These individuals who will spend so much time and resource on, on getting the right kind of car, trying to you know, create this right kind of image, and yet they pull up to the gas station in their $250,000 vehicle, and, and they don't have enough money in their account to fill it up with gas. So it's this idea, it's this trap of seeing wealth as, as a means towards some sort of artificial image, proving ourselves to the world in one way or the other. The other issue with uh, this high view of wealth is that when a wicked person dies, Proverbs 11, his expectation perishes, and the hope based on power has perished. In other words, it's not even going to last, right? This is a temporary satisfaction. This is a temporary image. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says that the one who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. It's something that, that cannot, in fact, sustain itself through many times through this life and definitely not into the next, right? You, you can't take it with you. That's that old saying. 
And yet, when we look at wealth, when we look at finances in our own lives, we are always tempted to think, man, this is the ultimate end-all, be-all of my existence. I've got to get that certain number. I've got to hit that certain pay stub. I've got to maintain the certain status. I've got to buy the certain item, maintain the certain lifestyle. And what's so tragic about it is not only does it not last, but, but it's not even ultimately satisfying. What we see in Proverbs 23 is that when you gaze upon riches, they're gone. For they surely make wings for themselves and fly off into the sky like an eagle. It's a beautiful illustration of how wealth ultimately just, it has wings and it's going to take off. So if we're chasing that, that's the the ultimate purpose of our existence. We're going to find ourselves lacking. We're going to find ourselves disappointed. We're going to find ourselves ultimately unsatisfied. One kind of way that it's been put through the years, this is kind of a variation of something Francis Bacon once said, is that wealth is a great servant, yet it's a terrible master. It's a great tool. It's a great resource. It's a wonderful uh, resource to steward and use. It can, it can create a lot of good. It can bring the Lord a lot of glory. And yet, if we allow it to overpower us, if we allow it to become the end-all, be-all, if we allow it to become an idol in our lives, then it's, you're going to have a bad time. I've seen this play out in my life uh, in a variety of different ways where I'm allowing, you know, some, some number, some figure, something, you know, certain bank account, some certain savings goal to, to become this overbearing thing. And it, it, it's terrible for me because I realize, you know, on the back and I'm, I look back, I'm like, man, what a waste, what a waste of my time and energy uh, to so be, to so obsess over the status of that wealth because again it's it's not something that's going to sustain you uh, my wife and i saw this play out uh, really interestingly when we had an opportunity a few years ago to go over to southern france and when we were there we got this opportunity to have this incredible probably the, the largest meal i've ever had in my life we had a 10 course meal at this special place uh, and it was, it was magnificent. I'll tell you, it was, it was really, we're, we're not bougie people in case you can tell by my dad attire, uh, but we were there and they, we just, we were like, let's lean into it. Let's, let's go to town. And so we had a 10 course meal. And if you never had 10 course meal, um, this is kind of what it can look like. This isn't what we ate. This is like Korean or something, but it was all I could find on Google. And so they, they served us though. So imagine all this, you know, Korean fish being French fish, I guess, and we had just as incredible, usually you have like these different appetizers or some things that are like two bites or some things that are like four bites, whoa, you know, and you get through this meal and there's different like reasons for stuff and you like have palate cleanser and stuff. It took like four hours. We sat down and we had a four hour meal uh, at this resort place and uh, at the end of it, it was like, God, I mean, you're just like, you're about to explode, right? And they like even give you special drinks. It's like, here, drink this and you won't feel so full. And I'm like, I'm in the Hunger Games, right? And I'm, <laughs> I'm the capital people <laughs> who just gorge themselves while the Ed District 12 is dead or no, they got blown up, right? Yeah, uh, uh, all I heard was, <laughs> okay, great. Uh, but it's this moment where you're like, gosh, what, I'm so satisfied, right? I had all these items and everything was buttery. And yet I woke up the next morning and I was hungry. I woke up the very next day, a few hours later, and I, I needed to eat again. 
That's, that's the reality of our existence is that there are certain things that, yeah, they can satisfy for a time. They can sustain you for a season. But a few hours later, you know, one snooze later, I, I, was, I was hungry. I was like, I need oatmeal or something. Like, I got to fill this hunger and this need that I have. When they asked, uh, John Rockefeller was the, pretty much the wealthiest American to have ever existed. He, you know, they tried to equate his past wealth around the turn of the uh, century. He lived in the early 1900s. They tried to equate his wealth back then with now. And it's like, you know, he would have owned a Google bajillion dollars. And so he was asked one time, they said, hey, how do you, how much money do you really need? Right? Because he'd obviously crossed every wealth threshold ever imaginable. They asked, what, what was the amount where you really are satisfied? Like, how much wealth do you really need to have made it? And he looked at this reporter in this interview, and he gave him, I think, a beautiful answer. And telling him, well, just, just a little bit more. That's how much you need to really be satisfied with your bank account. Just a little bit more. And it was this, you know, it's, it's a moment, I think, of self-awareness where he's able to recognize, yeah, there's, there's something to the fact that this is a never-ending race. There's something to the fact that even if you f- look from all appearances to have climbed the highest mountain, there's still just a little bit further you can go. And so if we allow wealth to become our end-all, be-all, the reality is that our lives are going to be lacking. Our souls are going to be hurt and dying and withering. And so the Lord calls us to something better. He calls us in the book of Proverbs to not try to put on those fronts, not chase this fleeting satisfaction, but instead to choose contentment. This is something that we see played out. G.K. Chesterton had this great quote on it, saying that there's two ways to get enough. One is to accumulate more and more and more and more and more and more and more. And the other is to simply desire less. It's this, uh, this idea of choosing contentment of looking at your life and making the conscious choice, God, I'm going to choose to be content with what you've given me. And that's not to say that you can't still seek, you know, furtherment in your career and and higher earning and and promotions. And those things aren't bad. It's not wrong to work with excellence. But it's wrong to chase those things if you think it's going to bring you the satisfaction you desire. A number of years ago, they asked kind of America as a whole, they did this big kind of cross socioeconomic um, survey. And they asked people, how much money do you need? How much money would you just be able to sit back and relax on? What they found was that people making, you know, around 75 annual, they would say, well, I need about like 110, 120. People making about 100,000 annual, they'd say, I need about 150, maybe 145 annual. And, and what they found was that across all these different spheres, people were pretty consistently choosing about 50% more than what they were currently making, no matter where they were in the, in the scale. And the Lord is saying, I have a better path for you. You can see your wealth as an opportunity to invest, but you're only going to be able to do that. You're only going to find yourself able to flex those generosity muscles that we'll talk about in a moment if you are recognizing that, that you have what you need, that your God sees you, that he cares about you, that he loves you, that he'll provide what you ultimately need, that you can be content. You can choose to be satisfied. On the flip side, rather than seeing it as an idol, there's also the temptation to view wealth as insignificant. In other words, not worthy of your time and energy and attention. Uh, this plays out a lot of times 
in Proverbs by this comparison between the wealthy and the poor. Uh, It says that the wealth of a rich person is like a fortified city, but the poor are brought to ruin by their poverty. In other words, there is a real danger to poverty. There's there's a real danger uh, that can come about. There's, there's harm that can befall you if you are without any resources. Some of us have maybe walked through that, or maybe we've had friends or family members walk through that where you're just financially ruined, and it's a, it's a terrible state to be in. Proverbs 19 tells us that wealth adds many friends, but a poor person is separated from his friend. Not only is it hard on your life, on maybe even your physical well-being, but it's hard on your relationships because these friends are, are running out of the picture. Why? Because they're, they're scared of this poor person. They're scared of their friend that's fallen on hard times to ask them and just, you know, leech off of whatever they have. I mean, you know, we talked about friendship. This obviously isn't a good friend. But the reality is that our an insignificant view of wealth, if we just allow it to just go away, then what's going to happen is going to not just be hard on us personally, it's going to be hard on our relationships. And so at one point, uh, the, there's this you know, whole chapter where there's this author and he's talking about a bunch of different principles. And he's, he's talking about, man, what he wished he had known. And he says, I, I ask, speaking to the Lord, he says, Lord, I ask that you would remove falsehood and lies far from me. Do not give me poverty or riches. Instead, feed me with my allotted portion of bread, lest I become satisfied and act deceptively, saying, who is the Lord? Or lest I become poor and steal and demean the name of my God. In other words, there are unique challenges and temptations on both ends of the spectrum. He's saying, if I become poor, then I could be tempted to sin, to steal, to act unethically, to try to get myself out of that hole. On the flip side, if I become wealthy, then I can be tempted to become so self-indulgent uh, and so self-satisfied that I forget the Lord who, in fact, put me in that position in the first place. So there are unique dangers to wealth. There also is unique danger to poverty. And so the Lord is trying to give us this idea, this picture, the fact that, yeah, wealth is not everything, right? And we can, we can affirm that all day until we're left with nothing, right? It's something. It, it is, there are, there's a lot of scripture on how do we use our financial resources because it, it matters. It's not something to just be treated flippantly. And this is something that maybe we've seen play out in our own lives. It's something I think we see play out right here with another animal. So I heard if you give your animal an egg, it knows to take care of it because it's super fragile. (laughs) I mean, come on. We knew this coming. We knew that cat wasn't going to take care of his resource, right? That was given to him to steward or her. I don't know. Uh, I can't tell with cats. But they... There's, there's this reality to our lives that sometimes we've been given an incredible resource. Some of us have been brought up in families where money wasn't really a thing we worried about. It wasn't something that stressed us out. It's something that we never really gave too much thought, too much concern to. And yet if we just continue in life with this flippant attitude towards fi- finances, what's going to happen is we're going to lose it. We're going to lose it. And you can try to dress it up as saying like, oh, well, I trust the Lord above all things. And he's getting, but, but the Lord has given us a lot of instruction on, on being diligent, being wise, being discerning with how we invest our money. Not just in eternity, but even here and now. That we should be careful. We should make good decisions. We should live ethically. And we should also 
make sure that we're responsible with what we've been given. Because if, if I'm not responsible with what, with what I've been given, then I'm going to be left in moments where people could maybe benefit from my generosity, and yet I'm, I'm left with nothing to provide. I can't step in and meet that need because I've, I've been unwise in how I've handled my own finances. I've been unwise in, in my lack of budgeting or, or caring about what I have. And so I think the Lord is calling us to choose to budget to recognize, okay, I, I can be content with what the Lord's given me, but I also need to be responsible with it, right? Just because I'm content doesn't mean I'm complacent. Just because I'm content doesn't mean that I just don't even think about money. No, I, I should give it some thought and attention because I've been given it as a steward. I, I should make, I should be responsible with this the same way I'm responsible with my time, the same way I'm responsible with my relationships, with my family, with my uh, spiritual gifts and abilities, I should be responsible with what I've been given. I need to choose to budget. This is something that I think plays out a lot. It's a muscle you can start to flex in college because you are more independent now than you have been previously, probably. And you will most likely only increase in your independence over time. And so at some point, if you're not already budgeting, I would encourage you, I mean, now's a great time to try it out. When we talked about this at Creekside a couple weeks ago, uh, I did like a quick dirty survey with a few uh, students right before this, the time, the class. And what I found was I was really impressed. Three out of four of them uh, were already using some sort of budgeting system. One of them had like envelopes that she put money in that she would use. Another one, she had a spreadsheet that her parents made her keep. Another guy, uh, his parents were super old school, drilled into him uh, that you keep a physical ledger, right? Checkbook kind of a thing. That's what I grew up on. Uh, my parents were very big on like, you pull out the pen, you pull out the paper and you just write out. Which to be fair, you know, when I was growing up in the 30s, like that's all we had. Uh, but... What's beautiful is that in this day and age, there are other resources. It doesn't have to be scary. You can use resources like Mint. I don't know if some of you guys probably already use it. Uh, my wife and I had a season where we used Mint. It's a really great just budgeting resource where you can link different accounts. You can watch, keep track of what you're spending on what and where it's going. You can set goals and plans and budgets within just an app that's super, super easy. Another great resource is Dave Ramsey has this thing called Financial Peace that's been running for a long, long time. And it has brought people so much freedom in their finances, brought people so much peace, literally, and a better understanding of what does it mean to create a budget, to stick to it, to be responsible with your resources. And he's a believer. He put this together not because he's like, you know, your end goal in life is to grow that egg until you just can't pick it up, right? Like, that's not his goal. His goal is to help you see that our God calls us to be responsible people, to be responsible citizens, to be people who can step in and then help out with the abundance that we've been given. We can say, you know what, I've been responsible with what I have. Therefore, in these moments of crisis, in these moments of need, I can help my family member. I can help this person I've come across. I can reach out and help this person. I can support this missionary because I wasn't just allowing my wealth to trickle away here and there because I wasn't paying attention. So I would encourage you, check these things out. This is a great time in your life to begin to build these muscles. Because that, that's, that's what it is, right? You're having to develop and cultivate an ability in this. Uh, and sometimes we can be slow to move into stuff like this, the money stuff, because we, we're quick to dismiss or, or delay things that we don't want to develop. But, but I'll tell you, this is a wonderful time for you to put in those reps, 
to start small and to start building those habits. And when we do that, what's incredible is we are then set up to be a people who can view our wealth, who can view our financial resource as an investment, an opportunity to not just increase frustration and and anxiety in our lives, but to in fact increase our faith and the faith of others. We see this in Proverbs 11. That one person is generous and yet grows more wealthy, but another withholds more than he should and comes to poverty. Now, remember, the book of Proverbs, it's not prophecy, right? These are not perfect equations that are always true. The, the Lord is not telling us that every time, you know, every dollar you give away, you'll receive two more in your, in your pocket. Just like, what? Right? That's, not, that's not the promise, but it's a principle, It's this concept of generosity. It's how we're instructed in Scripture to give, to be people who are generous. Paul talks about giving in the church as this opportunity to to live out a generous heart. He doesn't put facts and figures. He doesn't put, you know, complete percentages or numbers on things. He doesn't create this grid where you're like, well, if you make this much and you're there and you left this cost of living. He just says you should be generous. That's what the Lord loves to see. And this generosity, it doesn't just bless us in the sense that we can, maybe, maybe there is financial gain, maybe there's a spiritual gain, maybe it's your, your, there's joy and satisfaction to be found in, in generosity, right? It's better to give than receive, as Christ would say. Uh, but beyond that, Proverbs 14 tells us that the one who despises his neighbor sins, but whoever is kind to the needy is blessed, that the Lord looks favorably upon those who are operating out of a generous heart, because that's God's heart. And so the one who oppresses the poor has, in fact, insulted his creator. But whoever honors him will show favor to the needy. It's this beautiful principle that that our generosity can, in fact, bring glory and honor to God. Why? Because it's to people who he loves. I'm being generous with his children. And there's no quicker way to bless a parent than to care for, to love, to provide for their kids. This, I've seen this play out so much more in my life now that I am actually a dad. I've got three little kids, and I love, I love the people who love my children. I, it's like instinct. I can't not. Like when I see people walk around those Grace Kids shirts, I'm just like, you're the best. <laughs> like I just, I just, I just love them. And I know some of you all here, way to go. You probably haven't taken care of my kids because we're at Anderson. But, you know, you take care of other kids. And I'll tell you that those parents, they love you. They appreciate you so much. And if I am caring for someone else's kids, if you are taking the time to give my kid a high five, to encourage them to say, I like your shoes. And they're just going to be like, uh, and they won't talk back to you because um, whatever. But that, those moments, those, those little pieces of, of, of generosity, those little moments of, of caring for my kid, gosh, it's the quickest way to be in my heart. It's the quickest way to find favor in my eyes. And so the Lord is saying that's, that's how our Heavenly Father operates. If we are willing to be generous, to care for, to provide for His children that are all around us, what a blessing it is, not just to them, but to Him. And in the same way, if I'm looking at these people with scorn, if I despise them, if I am not caring for them or about them, well, that's in the same way, it's, it's going to bring frustration and anger from their father. So when the Lord tells us that we can use our financial resource, we can use our wealth to bless other people, he's saying we can also use it to bless 
him. And, and that's why when we use our finances for this heavenly kingdom mindset, it's really a path that's never going to disappoint us. It's an investment that will always have incredible return. And again, it's because we are operating in the heart and will of our God. We're aligning ourselves with, with his character when we do this, because that's, that's who our God is. He is the God who looked at people who really deserved scorn, people who deserved to be despised. He looked at his enemies as all these children of wrath, all these people in this world who had chosen rebellion, who had run the opposite direction of him, who were disregarding his love, disregarding his call. And yet while we were still sinners, or we were still knee deep in our transgression, God looked at us and he says, I I love you too much to leave you alone. And so he sent Jesus Christ out of heaven and onto earth to live the perfect life that we could never live, to die the death that we all deserve because of our failure. And yet when he rose again three days later, God says, this is the gift that I'm giving you. A promise, a guarantee, a you know, 100% guaranteed return on investment. If you are willing to trust in the name of my son, Jesus Christ, if you trust in who he is and what he's done, then you can be freed from the sin, the bondage, the shame, the failure that previously held you captive. Anyone who calls on his name might be saved. Anyone who calls on his name is no longer under condemnation. That's what our God has given us. That's the heart of our Lord. It's one of generosity because he gave us that gift based on no performance or merit of our own. He doesn't call us to meet him halfway. He doesn't call us to give, you know, 20% so we can avoid that uh, insurance, whatever thing. Like he says, "I I want you to just accept that you need me to call on me to save you. And I will bring me your need and I'll bring you salvation. That's the deal with our God. And so he says, you can now live a life that is modeled in that heartbeat. And it's not going to disappoint you. And it doesn't mean that you're going to necessarily have growing, flourishing financial records and books. It doesn't mean everything you invest in is going to pan out. It doesn't mean every business you start is going to succeed. But he's saying you can trust that I see the generosity of your heart and you can trust that that is what I value, that that is what I want to bless, that that is something that will be rewarded either in this life or the next. And so when we think about giving, when we think about generosity, I think sometimes uh, we try to break it down into these exact facts and figures. We try to bring up that chart and we think, okay, well, how exactly is it going to work? And and I I love how through the ages, uh, Christian leaders have been asked this question over and over again. I mean, how much, how much, like give me just an exact number, give me an exact amount that I should be giving. Uh, When someone wrote a letter to C.S. Lewis asking him, he said, well, I don't believe one can really settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Beautiful principle. He says, probably where you need to be is, is in a place of giving that, that stretches your faith. It's kind of what we see play out. I like to think about it. One scholar wrote about it this way. He says it's, it's like engagement versus taxes, right? So when you are getting engaged, uh, then, you know, generally speaking, the guy is going to go and he's going to buy some sort of ring made of some sort of precious metal that holds some type of precious stone, right? Generally speaking. And when that ha- and I know there's some people like, no, I just used a quarter in a vending machine. It's special. You know, okay, great. You know, but generally, the ring is going to be something like this, right? You're going to have a diamond or something. Uh, the old advertising campaigns were like, every man should spend three months of his salary. And it's like, oh, okay. Uh, and a lot of guys will do that. 
And so uh, it's, but why do men walk through that phase? Why did I like put all this time and energy and drive around to different cities to get my wife uh, the ring that I thought that, you know, I, that I thought was just perfect for her and for, you know, ensuring our betrothal. Like why, why did I take all that time and energy? Uh, it's because I saw it as this is, this is my opportunity to just express my love and appreciation, my affirmation of this woman in this relationship uh, with just a little, uh, with a financial thing, right? That's something that costs money. It's an investment. And the Lord is saying, I want you to give in a way that's generous, that in a way that's not like paying your taxes, right? We're about to hit tax season. We're kind of in it right now. And when that happens, many times the, the sentiment, right, the commercials that you see that are advertising H&R Block or, you know, uh, TurboTax and stuff like that, all the ads are people like, oh, it's tax time, right? And they're just like sad and dejected. And then someone's like, but use TurboTax. And like, oh, and yeah. And they are excited again. Uh, and it's seen as this horrific obligation because, right, who wants to fund roads and schools, right? But the people are just bummed out by it. And the reality is that we can view our giving to the Lord in that same light. Many times we try to break it down to this obligation and we say, talk about things like tithing, uh, which is, you know, this 10% rule that comes out of this old Israel temple tax. But the reality is that, you know, the, the nation of Israel, they, they, yeah, they had a temple tax, but they also had all these other ways that they gave. Generosity was baked into their culture. You would, when you planted your fields, when you harvested your crops as a farmer, you always left corners open for the needy to come by and collect from. When you uh, were giving, uh, when people were going into debt with you, you had to recognize, okay, every seven years, every debt in our nation will be wiped clean. Which some of us look at our student loans, we're like, yes, Lord, bring, bring, bring the year of Jubilee. You know, that's, and it's because God wanted to bake generosity into his people. So when you're struggling, when you're thinking about how am I investing in eternity, recognize it's something that should be approached with generosity. Martin Luther talked about this way. He says there's three conversions necessary for the believer. The conversion of the heart, the mind, and the purse. And of the three, the hardest one is the purse. It's this idea that it can be really hard for us to, to shift gears into this generosity mindset. And yet we're called by Scripture to choose to give. And so my closing thought for you is just three principles. As you're thinking about giving, you should think about these three things. One, you should choose to give in a way that you're building a pattern. Now is a spectacular time in your life to start lifting that weight. And sometimes we're tempted to think, well, I'll get to it later when I make a certain amount, when I hit a certain number. One of our staff members put it a great way. He's all about mobilization. And so he talks to people about giving support. And he told them, he uses this line that I just love, where he says that if you're not given, if you're not giving, like, let's say you are committing yourself to, I want to give 10% of my income or whatever. He says, if you're not giving $10 out of 100, he says, you're never going to give 10,000 out of 100,000. Because it's this principle. It's this idea that you, you've got to build that muscle. You're not going to cross some magical threshold where suddenly you look at your financial statement and you're like, oh, now I'm free to give. It's not how it works. So you should start building that muscle, give in a way that it's regular, where there's a pattern. And as you're looking at where to give, you ask yourself two things. Okay, where is their need and where do I worship? So ask yourself, okay, where is their need? Maybe there's need. This is what we see play out repeatedly in Scripture in God's people. They would give to need. They would see friends or family that were in need. They would see uh, you know, missionaries going out. Paul lived off of the support of 
local churches and other believers. Jesus himself lived off of the support of a few different families that, that would give and support their just the need to eat. They had to stay places. They had to sleep. And, and you can maybe see in your midst, there's organizations in town. There's ministries. There's nonprofits. There's parachurch ministries. You can give to these places that are helping people in need. Or maybe you have a friend that you can just help out. Send them something on Venmo or anonymously drop off an envelope in their room. Man, you can give to people who are in need. You can also give where you worship. It's another principle we see play out repeatedly in Scripture. Where people would come together and they would say, okay, we are walking alongside of one another in our pursuit of the Lord. And as we do that, we're going to show, we're going to exercise a spiritual gift of generosity, of giving. So maybe you had a church back home that you love, that you grew up in, you can give to them. You, maybe you're super connected with the church here. Maybe you're connected at Grace Southwood. I mean, give to Southwood. Maybe you go to Breakaway every single week and you love it. And you've been to 400 of them and you'll go to 401 and you could give to Breakaway. You could give to Impact. You could give to these different places that have facilitated your worship, have formed you as a believer. And it's a worthwhile investment because you're investing in eternity. So we're going to enter back into worship, and then you guys are going to break out for your table discussions. And I would just encourage you as we do this to not see finances, to not see giving as some sort of obligation, as some sort of tough rule from the Lord, but instead to see it as an opportunity to invest in what matters most. So let's pray to the Lord and ask him to change our hearts in that way. God, we thank you that you've given us this morning, God, this, this moment to come and, and learn from you. God, to read your word, to recognize the truth that it holds. And Lord, we just ask that you would allow it not just to affect our minds, but Lord, you would allow your word to transform our hearts. God, that we would be men and women who walk according to your ways, who live out the principles of your wisdom, as people who see our wealth, whether great or small, as an opportunity to invest in what matters most, as an opportunity to further your kingdom, as an opportunity to stretch and grow our own faith. So if you would take a moment right now as we enter into worship and and just ask the Lord in the quiet of your heart, God, where can I give? God, where is it that I could, in fact, sacrifice for the good of others and for the glory of your name. God, bring to my mind just a a person, uh, an organization, God, a, a missionary, a friend of mine who's about to go overseas this summer, maybe. God, bring to my mind these opportunities to walk according to your ways, God, to adopt your heartbeat. Ask him for that, and then ask him to motivate you for his spirit to, to push you forward in faith, to be a blessing. Ask him for that right now.